Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Lamp. I'm your host, James Lampkin, and I've got a very special guest that I've been wanting to talk to for a long time. He's currently serving our great country in the United States Army, Mr. Lieutenant Colonel Ryan Scott. Thank you for joining me. Hey, thanks for having me, man. I'm excited to be here, man. I really appreciate it. Oh, yeah, definitely, man. I'm um, I just want to say real quick, this is my cousin. We got family ties. So, you know, it's, it was a little hard to hook up with him, but because he loved me that much, he decided to clear his schedule for me. So thanks, man. Look out, man. So the first thing I wanted to ask you, man, is how did you end up joining the ROTC program? And you mind explaining what that is also? Yeah, man. It's the uh, Reserve Officer Training Corps is what it stands for, ROTC. So, you know, for – the military structure, you know, they have enlisted personnel and they have officers and also have warrant officers. But for the officers, the commissioning process can occur in three ways. One is through West Point. So you go to the academy and once you go to the academy, you get an automatic commission. And the academy's four-year college education then goes straight into the military. The second way is through officer candidate school. That's when an enlisted leader decides that they want to join the military so they transition it's a short abbreviated course but they give you the fundamentals assuming that you got military experience and they allow you to transition through that process and the last one the one i went through uh, rotc is where you go to a regular university and through that university you participate in courses structured to give you military history military doctrine basic level tactical information uh, as part of your college curriculum. And then through that process, all things go well. You go through a couple small training scenarios. It generally occurs over the summer. Past those, you get a commission. You take the oath, and then you become an officer in the Army. Now, was that your plan coming out of high school? No, man, to be honest with you, you know, I – I got a scholarship to UMBC, University of Maryland, Baltimore County. And, you know, I had no plan or inkling or I wasn't on the hunt to join the military. Uh, you know, I didn't, you know, our family, we don't have too many military folks as role models that are kind of pushing that on us. I think our uncle Peter, he was in the Air Force, enlisted and retired, but he was Reserve National Guard. So his experience was, you know, unique. <clears throat> so I didn't have that as part of my plan. Actually, I got a flyer in the mail my first semester in college uh, from Johns Hopkins University, and that was an ROTC program that I got my commission through. They had sent out a flyer for an adventure week, and it was really an adventure weekend. And in there, they give you the basic – it's like a recruitment weekend. You know, you go and do some wall repelling. You do some familiarization with, you know, military drill and ceremony. It's really like a watered-down version of what the military experience can be like, but it's also a, a way to kind of introduce folks who show potential to the military lifestyle uh, through, at least through the college population. So I saw the flyer in the mail. Oh, Adventure weekend. Oh, what was it all about? And I checked it out. It was actually a good time. I enjoyed the weekend. It was fun. Got more information. Uh, then on my own, I started participating in and taking the classes for military history and going to the ROTC program functions that occurred at Johns Hopkins University. Uh, and that's really over time, over the 
period of that first year, my first semester, second semester in college, I found myself a part of the uh, cadet population. Like I was regular, I was, I was all in. And then I started picking up rank pretty quick in our ROTC program. The next semester I was a cadet sergeant major. Um, so I found that I found like my niche. I found a, I found my calling, at least as far as the ROTC experience goes. Does that make sense? Oh, definitely, definitely. Yeah. So were you, were you actually nervous when you made a decision? No, because I, you know, I didn't know what I didn't know. I had no idea what the actual army lifestyle was going to be like past, you know, the college ROTC experience. You know, I went and everything I did was kind of, it felt familiar, it felt right, it felt doable. So there's nothing that I had experienced that was unusual or unfamiliar for me. It was something that kind of was like a natural fit. You know, every now and again, people luck out and they find like their calling. I think for me, at least for the way the military is structured for certain aspects of my personality type and the way that I operate and where I, I see the world, it was a good fit. Okay. Um, so what is, so once you finished RTC, what job did you end up getting? So I, when I got my commission, the way that the ROTC program does, and I think this occurs as well in the academy, you in our population of the order of merit list, OML, mm-hmm. and depending on where you rank on there, you know, you, you prioritize those branches out of all the military branches that exist. You prioritize your branches of choice so that you can be assessed against your peers and then from there, you know, the military decide based on your academic potential, based on how well you did uh, in previous metrics that they have over the summer. And then, you you know, you rack and stack and you get your call. And I was lucky enough to get my first choice, which was aviation. So I applied, I put my list down, uh, aviation being number one. And it was a wrap after that. Was there a reason you wanted aviation as your first choice? Well, yeah, you know, when I originally joined, I wanted to be an infantry officer. I thought that was going to be my road in. Um, I liked the tactical piece of what I was experiencing in ROTC, at least. But I had a mentor who was a captain at the time, uh, Colonel Pr- who's, who's a colonel now, but at the time it was Captain Prather. He had saw or took interest in me and two other uh, cadets. And he had forced us or highly encouraged us to take the aviation aptitude tests. He spent some after school time or out of classroom time uh, prepping us for the exam, kind of giving us the fundamentals on how um, aviation operations occur, um, basic principles of flight, those types of things that are, you know, important for you to score well on the exam. So after that, I took the exam and I scored really well. I got one of the higher scores based on what he offered me for, you know, the extra time. And from that point, you know, he had recommended if you want to be an aviation officer, you need to strategically rack and stack your OML. So I did that. You know, I put aviation number one and I put those other branches that are, you know, least desirable or least likely for me to get as my second, third, and fourth, knowing that, you know, if you put aviation as number one and you fit the bill and you're competitive, then it's a wrap. So, you know, between that t- 
time that Captain Prather gave me, mentoring me and, and encouraging me to join aviation and me doing well on the aviation aptitude test, uh, it, it was predestined for me to become an aviation officer. Wow, that's great. So let's talk about what it, what, now that you actually are an officer, you're in aviation, you actually get to fly the Blackhawks. Yeah, yeah, I fly the Blackhawk helicopter. I want you to talk about what that experience is like. Oh, man. It, the best way to describe it is like if you – I think most folks can understand car analogy. So it's kind of like getting into a high-powered race car. You know, it, yeah, if you ever driven – when I was growing you know, I had a hoopty. You know, growing up, you had a, a, a car that was not the most <laughs> – it was affordable, <laughs> right? It was not – a sports car by no stretch. You know, my first car was, you know, Mazda GLC Deluxe 1983, and I got it in 1998. So, you know, it was like a <laughs> oh. So imagine that and getting into a Lamborghini uh, that moves in any direction that you move the stick. So that is what it's like flying a helicopter. It, it is the Blackhawk especially is fast, it's strong, it's powerful, and I'm only limited by my skill set on how I can get off the ground and go. You know, it's not like an airplane where you you pick up and you go and you, you know, left, right, and straight with the helicopter. I can go forward, backwards, left, right, up, down, and it's all within my power and my control touch. So how long is the um, the training to actually fly? How long is the training? So I went to flight school immediately after college, and at that time, it took longer than it would now. I believe the way that the military has it structured now, you should be able to get qualified with the basic aviation qualification within about uh, six months. And then from there, you get your advanced airframe training or certification uh, a little less than six months, probably closer to like two to four months. Um, if I'm not mistaken. So my experience though, I graduated, I got my commission in 2002 was when I became a second lieutenant in the army. And I was not, I didn't finish flight school until 2003. And then from there I got my first assignment. So it took me a little bit longer than most, but only because there were delays in the schoolhouse that prevented me from going straight through and they didn't have the expedited version or the, the truncated version, the concentrated version that they have now. Uh, in the current flight school program. So what was it like when you flew it for the first time? Oh, man. You know, it was, uh, it's crazy because your brain and how you, um, <laughs> the way that you think you manipulate controls for like driving a car or a machine is just a, the learning curve is so steep because, you know, you have to, especially with the training helicopters where they don't compensate because you know, the Blackhawk and the way technology is now, it compensates for human error. Like I don't have to be the smoothest, although it helps, I don't have to be the smoothest to make that aircraft get off the ground safely and on the ground safely um, with a certain level of finesse. But with the older training helicopters that I grew up flying in flight school, you really, I mean, you, the slightest touch, you felt it. So, you know, picking up it off the ground, the shakes, the moves, the jitters, the nerves, you felt everything you put in there. And, you know, when flying, you're using your feet 
to turn the nose of the helicopter. You're using one hand to put in power. You're using another hand to actually move the direction of the aircraft. So there's so, and, and you move it on a, a, a cycle of 360 degrees. So it was tough. I didn't actually, you know, I, I struggled the first couple of weeks and they give you this window where if you don't find what they call the hover button, where you can pick it up off the ground and kind of hover and maneuver the helicopter safely at a hover, like five feet off the ground, three to five feet off the ground, mm-hmm. then you're out of flight school. And I was closely, I was close to getting put out because I couldn't find that hover button, that mental switch to help me control the helicopter when I got off the ground. But when I found it, uh, it was a wrap. I was actually, there's no stopping me then, but it was hard. The first little bit was really, it was a pretty steep learning curve. So were you, were you, like you said, you almost didn't make it. Were you, did, was there ever a point where you doubted that you wouldn't make it? No, I never doubted it, you know, but there's that pressure, you know, that pressure that, okay, one more chance. Okay, now it's time. Uh, and, you know, me, I'm, I'm dedicated and competitive dude. So I went to, they had a little, <laughs> it's funny because when I went to flight school, we didn't have the leaps in technology like we have now. Like so much has changed. But like even back in 2002, you know, the training equipment that they had in flight school was based on strings and wires and, and wood. Some of the best tools that they had was this little board that, and on the board, there was a marble on the board, and the strings were designed to move the same way that they respond when you're moving a helicopter. So if I push the stick connected to the board forward, the marble will move the same way the helicopter will. And a, marble's, a marble that's moving freely on a piece of wood, I mean, that's hard to control, just like a helicopter. So it was a great learning tool. So I just spent time and hours trying to master that small, minor, finessed control touches that you need when you're moving a helicopter that they have you fly in the training period of flight school. And I got it, you know, but I never doubted that I was going to get it. It was really just the longer it took, the higher the pressure, uh, despite what they were saying in the schoolhouse. Like, I, I'm, I'm going to get this, you know. So is that, you know, now that you're, now that you're flying, you know, that you, you put it not every day. I don't know how often you do it. But um, is, there, is there still like a level of fear that you have to overcome now, you know? Because this is a, you know, this is not a job where you can make mistakes. So is there like a level of fear that you, there's something that you always encounter or that you always have to overcome? I always encounter in my gut the fact that I'm human. You know, I never get off the ground or land without that reminder of how blessed I am. You know, uh, I won't lie to you like that feeling that you have to get in the helicopter knowing that it could be your last time because just that's just the, the, the risk and what we do. Um, but fear is, is a, is a normal thing. You know, I think for, for some long as it, I'm not the type that allows fear to incapacitate me and I'm not special. I'm not any different than anybody else, but I think my, my life experiences in my, belief system allows me to kind of push through that fear. I've been, I'm comfortable feeling uncomfortable as I find the best way to put it. I'm very comfortable feeling uncomfortable. So that allows me to perform under stress. Um, part of that is the military. A lot of the time in the military being faced with scenarios that force you to overcome the human instinct of fight or flight, you know? So I, 
I guess, defer more to the fight part than the flight part. Okay. But yeah, I mean, I'd be, I would be lying to you if, if there was a part of my gut that would worry that, you know, my co-pilot wasn't prepared or I overlooked something or, you know, nature or life kicks in, Murphy's Law kicks in, all those things are variables that you can't control. You know, you just never know and it can be your, your time. So, you know, you take off your land, I get those reminders that life is precious. But uh, so, yeah, that's a long way of saying fear is there, but not to the point where it's going to stop me from moving forward. Gotcha. So now that you've achieved the rank of Lieutenant Colonel, um, a lot of responsibilities come with that. So I wanted to take the, I wanted to take a minute to ask you to define leadership. Mm. Yeah. So for me, I define leadership as from, from my personal leadership style, the, the coach that plays. I'll say that again, the coach that plays, right? So on one end, good leaders are coaches. You, know, you, you build a team, you inspire, you provide guidance, you identify members of your team, their strengths and their weaknesses so that the, organ, the whole team can gel and perform based on the capabilities of those individuals on the team, the strongest ones and the weakest ones. Um, you build up. A coach identifies those who are the weak ones and do provides those tools that are necessary for those weak ones to get stronger or get better over time. So I see that aspect of it. The coach that plays, so the player part is, I have to be able to do those things that I ask my team members to do. Now, that's not to say that, you know, I have to be as good as those people because I have experts who do things for me that I'm, I don't have to do. But if I'm asking them to do something hard, I have to be willing to do those hard things with them. You know, if they're grinding, I have to be there grinding with them. Or if they're grinding, I have to show them what grinding looks like and let them know that I'm not scared to grind, that I've done it, I've been there. I've, I've, I'm capable of doing those hard things that I'm asking them to do. So for me, leadership is the coach that plays, and that's how I try to emulate my leadership style. And there's a difference between being a leader and being in charge, right? Because anybody can be in charge. Anybody, any coach can get hired, you know, but you know, the, the difference maker is the performance that occurs when you're in the seat, you know, you can perform and your performance is not based on what you do it's based on how the team responds to what you do. Does that make sense? Definitely. That's a great, I like that definition. I yeah. like that. Is there, was there a certain leader that influenced you the most? Mm. You know, I'll be honest with you. I, the military, Yes, they, I've had several leaders who played a part in my career. You know, I've watched from afar a lot of men and women that I admired who had unique traits about them that made me better by stealing and emulating those traits. Um, but unfortunately, I've never had a mint like someone who was with me throughout my career who quote unquote brought me up or quote unquote mentored me to make me Lieutenant Colonel Ryan Scott. I'm probably a hodgepodge of several good and bad experiences that helped shape my view. That's not to say though, as I've 
I've been fortunate in the later part of my career to have folks that have highly influenced and highly made differences in who I am as Lieutenant Colonel, who I was as a major, who I am as Ryan Scott. What would you say, because, because you, you change so much, um, you know, the military moves you a lot. Yeah. So would you, would you say because you never really got a chance to sit down for a long period or just, just the way life played out? No, I don't think, because, you know, the, everyone in the military moves, right? So I don't think that's it. I think for me, um, there are a couple things that played into me not having that mentorship in my career. One, to be honest, I think it was because I'm a minority. Minority officers, a black officer, black officer in aviation, I'm, I'm a unicorn. You know, there's not many uh, officers who fit my description you know, my background. So I bring a, I'm Ryan Scott. I bring a unique personality to this military profession. And if I think it's human nature for people to gravitate towards people that are like them. And it's also human nature for people to kind of avoid people that they don't understand or they don't know. And it wasn't that they didn't like me. They just didn't know me. And I, you know, kind of a individual kind of comfortable being by myself not an introvert per se, but very confident with being alone and by myself. I didn't make it easy for people to seek me out for mentorship. And maybe the other end of that is there may have been people who wanted to mentor me and I just wasn't receptive to it. I didn't realize what they were trying to do at the time, you know, but every exchange I've had with a supervisor or, or a leader who was influential, you know, those were some great exchanges that we had, but it never evolved until later in my career to one of those where it was an email that I received from a leader saying, or a, a previous boss checking in on me, how do you, how you doing? Saw you on the promotion list, you know, where you going next? If you need anything, reach out. Those types of things didn't happen until later. So why well, I, I wasn't the, the race thing. I thought about it, but um, since you touched on it, I just want to go back to it. Um, is there pressure on you? Because like you said, I mean, there's black officers in the military, but and you're, first of all, you feel it's just not a lot of aviation officers, period. Mm-hmm. So then, then add on the fact that you are a black man. Does that, does that, does that add pressure to you being that you wanted a very few? Um, it does. It adds pressure in the sense that I realize how unique and how fortunate I am. It, there's no pressure from the military. I think the military is good as an institution, as an organization at allowing your work ethic and allowing your performance to speak for or go beyond, you know, race, gender, sexual orientation. Uh, So those things I think don't hold me back. The, The army as an institution is good for that. But the pressure I think is really from me understanding beyond what the military is as an institution, the human dimension of every organization, the human dimension of my life experiences lets me know that I'm constantly reminded that I am different. You know, there are times where I sit in a room and I'm the only black man in the room. I'm the only black person in the room, the only minority in the room. And those experiences, and and I'm the one, I may be the one speaking. I may be the one leading the meeting. So those pressures and those reminders that are subtle are are there so i'm i don't lose sight of the fact that i have to represent for 
those who may come after me someday and let them know that I have to be a good role model. I have to be a good example. I have to be a good steward, if that makes sense. If I pave the way and allow people to see that right comes in many forms, shapes, sizes, and colors, then, you know, some young lieutenant who's a black officer, male, female, or some, you know, minority group who sees me will see that, oh man, that's, it's possible. You see that? Somebody who looks like me or who I can relate to who was in charge of that meeting and they crushed it, you know? Definitely. I, mean, I wanted to touch on this because we, when I went to your promotion ceremony, you made one of the most impactful statements that I heard. Mm. You were talking about your wife and um, you, meant, you made a statement that your wife knows everything about you. Sure. I just wanted you to kind of touch on how important that is because a lot of times we as men, we don't really open up. It's usually only to our wives and yeah. it has to be like a level of trust and understanding mm-hmm. for us to do that. So I just wanted you to talk more about that. Yeah, no, no doubt, man. I think, you know, Trish is the one who truly knows me. And if you think about it, everyone whether it's intentional or in, unintentional, but it just happens just by the way of just being humans, I believe. You, you give certain aspects of yourself. You know, people get puzzle pieces of who you are. You know, the Army gets Lieutenant Colonel Ryan Scott. They don't get to see Ryan Scott, the father, Ryan Scott, the friend. You know, they get to see Ryan Scott, the coach, the leader, the, the officer. My family, uh, my brothers, my mom, they see Ryan Scott, the, the son, the brother, the cousin, you know, and they don't get to see, you guys don't get to see Ryan Scott, the officer, you know. So Trish, she gets to see it all. I mean, she saw me, although, you know, she wasn't with me my whole life, you know, but we've been together 16 years, going on 16 years now, 15 going on 16, right? So she's seen my evolution in the army. So she knows that side, those stresses, those fears, those nights of worry, the self-doubt, the reminders that you are a minority officer, the reminders that aviation is tough, the reminders that this is a tough grind. And if you want to survive, you want to make it, you got to work hard. You know, those insecurities that occur that test you. She sees me as a husband. So she knows me, intimately as a partner in life. She sees my relationship with my mom, my relationship with my brothers, my relationship with my cousins. So she sees the total picture. She sees me when I'm vulnerable. She sees me when I'm strong. She sees me when I'm growing and developing and evolving. And every choice that I've made in the military and academically, personally, from the time we've met and beyond, she's been a part of that. She's been my sounding board, my advocate. So she knows me fully. And, and that's tough, you know, to be vulnerable in front of somebody, but it's not tough when you just let go and you just accept that. That's my, that's my partner. That's my buddy. You know, like it's easy when you accept it, you embrace it. That makes sense. Oh yeah, of course. Um, so can you imagine what your career, your military career would be like if she wasn't in your life? Yeah, I could imagine it. it wouldn't be I wouldn't be successful as I am now. That's for sure. 
You know, wow. uh, she's a, she compliments me. I can't, I can't see myself making some of the same choices that I've made without her being a part of it. Because a lot of the drive that I do is to take, make sure that she's taken care of and my daughter's taken care of, you know, Charlotte. So that driver for me to keep pushing and succeeding, I'm naturally uh, outgoing and I always strive to keep moving and improve, right? But some of the specific deliberate choices I've made have been motivated knowing that her, that Trisha and Charlotte would benefit from those choices. So without them being a part of that, without Trish being a part of that, I couldn't imagine making some of the tough choices that ultimately would benefit the family and our long-term success in the process. Yeah, that's great. Cause in the military, I mean, not even just the military, um, just life in general, you need a good partner. You need somebody to oh, yeah. bounce things off with, um, compliment you, just all those things you mentioned. Cause especially for against, especially for men, cause we just naturally, I think we're, um, more, guarded with our emotions and our feelings and what we, we want to say. Yeah. Uh, we can so, be. Yeah, so you get to a point, like for me, it took me years to understand the role of a wife because I was, I'm not going to say I was scared to communicate. I don't. I didn't really know how to. Mm. When you're so used to being guarded and not wanting to share things, you don't really know how to eventually open up. And it took it took me years to get to that point. And Letitia was just she was really good about just waiting for me. Um, mm. Of course, it was you know there was some frustrating moments knowing that your your spouse is not opening up and being vulnerable. But that's just a part of growth, just being able to do it. So once. I got to a point because I didn't, I wasn't always at this point where I can just openly share with her and she knew it. But once we did get to that point, it's helped us both a lot because now she's able to help me and in turn, I'm able to help her because now we're both open and honest about what we're feeling, even if it's good or bad. So those are some of the things that you have to get through in order to have a successful marriage. Oh yeah, man, I agree. And you know, I'm, I know that although I'm on the receiving end of this interview, by no no stretch am I perfect in my interaction with Trish. You know, I'm not sure you remember also saying the the ceremony. I almost lost it too. You know, I get I almost lost. I've put Trish through a lot of stress being a military wife, and you know, one of the things that I've done wrong that I've grown from is I've I had a tendency to go into autopilot. You know, assuming that the long hours and the hard work, when it occurred, the church would be there. And I didn't have to do anything to reinforce her support, to remind her that her support is appreciated. You know, it, it almost was as if, you know, you, you go away for a while and you know that she'll be there when you get back. That's, that may be true, but that doesn't mean that she doesn't need the reminder from you, from me, that her sacrifice was appreciated that I know that she's sacrificing. Uh, and I'm still, I still struggle with that because I still, I mean, I'm, I'm Lieutenant Colonel now. So the higher up you go, the tougher the choices become, you know, some people think it's easy because you're at the top. I'm far from the top. 
uh, <laughs> higher than I was when I started. Um, but you know, more money, more problems, right? More responsibility, more demands. So I'm really a really, really cautious of that and aware of what that does to both Trish and Charlotte for that matter. Yeah. I think what it is to, um, as much as you don't want to, when you get a good woman, you can take it for granted. Oh, absolutely. I know that was one of my issues. I, I took Letitia for granted. Um, because the way it happens, you know, they, they start, they so good and they're so, you know, they're so good at what they do. They're so, they make things come together so effortlessly. Like you forget that they had to sacrifice a lot to help you out, help the family out. So you take it for granted because they've done it so many times. Sure. So eventually a person gets tired of taking it for granted. And I think that was my, my issue too with me and Letitia. Like, I'm I'm man enough to admit now I took it for granted because I was just so used to her handling business. You know, you know yeah. when somebody when you when somebody's making it look so easy and they're doing it all the time, you can take it for granted. Yeah. And I, but but I got a swift reminder not to. <laughs> so you know it, it happens. Yeah, we but, need those kicks in the butt every now and again, right? You need those uh, reminders that you know. Don't take it for granted. You know, I think it's what, what occurs. My belief is, you know, what occurs is that people normalize, you know, experiences normalize. You know, you get that. I'll say I hate using the term the honeymoon phase. But, you know, when you meet somebody new and you're dating, the excitement of discovery, all those things allow you to look past the little things. Right. But then once you normalize, you become, you know, committed and in love, then you start building bonds and and you start building trust and those other things. So you go from that excitement to the normalization. But after a while, once you normalize, there's this, a new transition that occurs where, you know, that normalization blinds you to the things that you needed when you were in that excitement phase, those things you needed when you were in the love building phase. You know, when you get, even you get past excitement, it's not new anymore. There's some things that you do and say in that love building, that love creation phase that, you know, once you normalize, you, you may not do. And that, I think that, you know, you look at guys who, you know, there's some traditional guys who hold the door for their women, you know, and it, it, that's, an, that's an older tradition, but some people find that really important to do still. And, you know, that's an example of those things may start to degrade once you're with somebody for 10 years, 20 years, and not say that you don't love them anymore, you just become normalized to certain things. And it's like, you know, you, you just lose sight of those little things that occurred during the love building phase of a relationship, love growing phase of relationship. Does that make sense? Yeah. Oh yeah. I'm going to tell you a quick story. So well, I hope it's quick. <laughs> when, so when me and Letitia first met, you know, it's new it's exciting and it's fun, you know. So I always wanted to spend time with her. Like, you know, well, let me let me back up real quick. The the one thing, and ironically, she helped me with this. The one thing we neglect, I don't know if it's just men, but it could be women too, is the love language. I don't know if you're familiar with those. Oh yeah, yeah. That I forget the uh the book, I forget the author of the book of love languages, but sure, absolutely. We all have those things that um, we respond to heavily. Yeah. So for years, 
hell, pretty much our whole marriage. She had been telling me about it, but I would always ignore it. <laughs> Never paid it no mind. Well, her her love language is quality time. And when I took the test, ironically, that's my least, my least fate, my least, you know, trigger is, is quality time. But when you first meet a person and you want to, you know, you, you always want to spend time with them, it was easy. Like, mm-hmm. I'm always wanting to be with her. I'm always, you know, calling her and, and just wanting to spend time with her. But like you just said, it becomes normal. And then once that phase wore off, you know, the quality time, it kind of went away because that just didn't come natural to me. So I had to figure out that, okay, this is the love language that works for her is quality time. And I still struggle with it. Mm-hmm. But those are just things you have to learn as you continue to grow with a person, continue to be with them. It's just learning their love language because it's not just about you. You got to learn their love language to keep them happy. So oh, yeah. I get it, man, like that. That whole phase of the things becoming normal, I think that's can be very detrimental to any marriage. Yeah, it's because it gets normal. Like it's you, you forget that you know you forget the, that they need quality time too. That you forget that they want you know some nice flowers or something or a date. You know, just a simple date and not just not just any, you know, just a good date when you was, when you was doing it, when you was going out, when y'all were just boyfriend and girlfriend, you still got to do that when you marry. Yeah. And you yeah. And you don't need to post it. I think another thing I was doing too was I was involved in social media a lot too. You know, mm-hmm. you go out, you do something and you got to tell the world and you don't, I, I had to understand that you don't need to do that. You just go out, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? 2001, we went out and we didn't talk about it to nobody. You just went Yeah, out. yeah. So you got to, you kind of got to go back to what you was doing when you first met her, you know? Yeah. Well, yeah. This one thing that like the, uh, the military is good for is, is training. We always train, we always train, we always train, right? And I'm not sure about how you feel about it, but I'd be curious to get your thoughts on it. You know, how important is, is training, right? So if training for me in the military is important, you, people, the American taxpayer wants me to train. Otherwise, I'll rely on what I learned back in 2002 when I joined the military to get me through, which I don't think is going to be good enough for me to survive and thrive in the military. I have to keep training and get exposed to new things in the military in order for me to become a better officer and a better aviation officer, a better pilot, a better leader, coach, player, right? Mm-hmm. Why don't we take that same approach with our relationships? Like, I, I, need, I need to continue to train. I need to continue to grow. So how do you do that? I need to read and invest time in being a better husband just the same way I invest time in being a better pilot, being a better army, army leader, reading those books that make me better. So some people have like a negative aversion because I don't need that. I got it. I got it figured out. Right. But I think that if we do it in our professional world, you know, people go to trainings and seminars and things like that, that the, that their job pays for. Why wouldn't we invest that time in our love or in our, in our partner and growing and understanding ourselves and understanding them? Cause we evolved. Like I'm not the same husband I was in 2004 when we got married, you know, I, I've changed, you know, so, She's changed as well. 
And to get better and invest in that time, I think is an important thing to consider for a lot of couples who don't. Yeah, that's that's actually that's actually great because I know I needed to. Like that's why I said I'm like I, I I didn't like I was saying with the whole love language thing. I totally dismissed it. Mm. But had I started reading about it years ago, <laughs> I may not have had the problems that I had. Yeah, but because I was so in my own world and my own way that I didn't take the time to read. I didn't take the time to, you know, accept that we are changing because the, like you just said, I'm not the same husband I was. We got married 2003. I'm not mm-hmm. the same husband I was in 2003. I mean, that means you stagnant. You shouldn't be the same person. Yes, right. In 2003, you have to keep evolving. So we definitely need to invest more in training and reading and, understanding things like that because it will help. <laughs> That's right. I have to keep that in mind, man. I've, I've, I've been, I've actually been doing a little better. And some, sometimes it's not even reading. I'm not reading books like um, marriage, just, just regular books because um, it's good to just be able to have a conversation with your spouse. Oh, yeah, man. You talk, we talk, I talk to, I talk to a lot of people and sometimes she lets me know she's like, well, you say like you find time to talk to everybody else, but you can't talk to me. So sometimes I'll just find little articles and stuff and, um, you know, I'll read them and then I'll just talk to her. So we could, we could just have some quality time doing that. Just talking about an article we read. Yes. Yeah. Cause like you said, you have to do that. You, we had like, if you don't invest time in these women and they don't invest time in you, it's going to fall apart. Now, is it work? Yes. <laughs> it's constant work. It's everyday work. You need to remind yourself every day what you're supposed to be doing. Because mm-hmm. if you don't, things fall apart. It's true. So true. I wanted to close out with this. Um, you know, you talked about the military, but you're not going to be there forever. <laughs> I wanted to talk about what, what do you plan on, you know, what do you see yourself doing after this whole ride is over with the good old Uncle Sam government. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's a good question, man. So right now I'm in a PhD program at North Carolina State University, right? So I had the opportunity based on what this skill set will offer me to have options when I get out. One option will be to teach. And I, I've entertained that. I really enjoy that coach, the coaching role. So to transition that coach role to an academic setting to give people tools to succeed, I think would be maybe fun. I think I'd enjoy that in the backside of my career. Right. Another, another part of me realized that the military has given me some pretty serious tools that I don't know if being a teacher would compensate me enough. I have to be doing it for the love, which I may do, you know, but I think the military has given me some serious tools that I think could transition me into um, consulting or, uh, you know, opening a couple small businesses, building some small business teams where that I'm, I may be the owner of those, but I can coach a small group of entrepreneurs that to operationalize or run my businesses and I can provide the guidance and the vision of those businesses. I, I thought, I think that would be really cool. And then the third option I thought about was getting into public service, possibly as a city manager, you know, my, my degrees in public administration and my PhD will be in public administration and um, 
public management and leadership, those things translate well into being a city manager or or translating those skill sets into making public organizations more effective. Politics? Ah, I don't know, man. I'm from D.C., so, you know, (laughs) you got to be super squeaky clean to get into <laughs> politics. And I don't know, I want somebody looking up what I did in sixth grade. And, I know. Miss uh, me, man. I, uh, you know, it's funny, I, the crazy part is, I could actually picture you as a politician. That's scary. Mm. Mm. But I want you to be no, because I love you too much. And I don't mm. ever want to not trust you. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think, I don't, know if I, I don't know if I would find happiness in that because, you know, the military is, Everything is quote unquote political, right? But you know, with the military, you have a plan, you see the plan through and it just happens, right? But the bureaucracy that is a part of public service is sometimes slow and frustrating for those who aren't used to navigating that space. And I think the learning curve for me would be pretty steep. I mean, I I lose my soul. So I don't know. I don't know, you never know though, man, but I, I don't know. Yeah. Well, man, I really want to thank you for um, taking the time to do this, man, because I know you, you know, you, like you said, you're doing a PhD program, and I just know your time is very limited. So, man, I just wanted to thank you. Well, thanks for having me, man. Anytime. And this is uh, talking to you is a reminder of, uh, you know, success. You know, see you starting your business and, and rolling with it and having opportunities to put, you know, scrubs like me on a platform. Uh, <laughs> no, seriously, I think, you know, giving me an opportunity just to, you know, step back and reflect on my experiences on a platform like this is, you know, an honor. And I really appreciate that. Hey, man, I just want to thank you again for doing it. And, um, you know, I tell you all the time, but man, I'm so proud of you because we did grow up together. And just to see the man you've developed into you know, I just felt I felt like a sense of joy and pride when you when I went to your promotion ceremony to Colonel. I mean, that was like a huge moment for me because just seeing the man you've become, the the leader you've become, man, it, it it really made me feel great to see that. And I know you got a lot of great things ahead, so I'm truly looking forward to just seeing what God has for you and how far this journey goes. Because I know you, I know some going to be some great things coming from. Oh man, I appreciate that, man. And just like I, I said before, I say it again. You know, I'm I am who I am based because of the people who have touched my life in some small way and others in large ways, man. And I got three brothers, and you're one of them. You know what I mean? So I think I am where I am because I got some great people in my life who, who got my back. You know, so I love you, man. I really appreciate it. Hey, man, love you too. And um, for those who want to continue to follow the show. My Instagram is jlamp827. And again, thank you all for listening and have a great day.